Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Earlier this week, Sudan's military and opposition protesters looked close to an agreement on finding a way forward for the country after the overthrow of longtime leader Omar al-Bashir. But violence against protesters has led the Transitional Military Council to suspend the talks with the opposition for 72 hours, an action the opposition calls regrettable. With me is historian Alden Young. He's director of Africana Studies at Drexel University and the author of Transforming Sudan, Decolonization, Economic Development and State Formation. Thanks for joining us, Alden Young. Hi, thank you for having me. Everyone seems to be talking about, in the articles I'm reading about Sudan, the uh, paramilitary-like organization, the rapid support forces. And the opposition says they're the ones that are shooting the protesters and then taking violence against the protesters. Who are these guys? Um, The rapid support forces are a very interesting organization. I mean, created mostly of people coming from the western Western Sudan, uh, from the Arab tribes. Some people say it's a rebranding of what we used to call as the Janjaweed in the early 2000s during the wars in Darfur. But the rapid support forces since then have become a formalized paramilitary organization um, run by Hamati, who today is now the vice um the, the second in command of the Transitional Military Council. Yeah, yeah. He seems like he's the interim vice president. Is that who is? He's the interim interim vice president of the Transitional Military Council. And Hamati has uh, his own interesting background. Definitely. Some people say that he's the largest gold trader in the country, and gold became the major export after um, after partition in 2011. But he also runs this paramilitary force, the Rapid Support Forces, who have about Estimates say about 40,000 men under arms. Now, that sounds like a lot of men. And I've been reading that that is equal, you know, they might be equal in power to the rest of Sudan's military. They're a, they're they're as big a force as, uh, you know, the rest of the military. Well, the thing about the rapid support forces is that they don't have the artillery units and heavy and heavy weapons that are that the Sudan military has. Um, but they're more of a paramilitary force. And, but they've become much stronger because of the war in Yemen. And so Sudan has been a major contributor to the com- ongoing conflict in Yemen. And it's been primarily members of the rapid support forces that have been going to Yemen and fighting with the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. And because of that, they've become very strong. In recent years, now, uh, what are what do they want to do with that strength? Because it seems <clears throat> like they might want to just uh, cut off these talks, uh, take power themselves, and you know, start operating. Is that a, a crazy conclusion to draw? Well, for a long time, President Omar al-Bashir had said that Hamdati and his rapid support forces were his protection; they were his insurance policy against a potential coup from the military or dissension um, in Khartoum itself. And, but they surprised us during the, the protest that Hamdati was one of the early members to actually turn against Bashir. So before the regular army and the security services completely abandoned Bashir, Hamdati came out and said, look, you guys can't shoot the protesters. Um, it's our job to protect them. And so in some ways, he's become this decisive figure. I don't think he necessarily wants to take power completely by himself, um, but I think he's very much afraid 
of being accused of war crimes are investigated. I think he wants to maintain his autonomy. Well, then he, but he would maybe want to wreck the opposition taking power. Is that about the size of it? I think the reason that the violence has broken out now um, is because of the is because of a stalemate in the negotiations. For instance, both sides have agreed perhaps that there will be a transition, but the nature of the transition remains to be decided. In particular, what will be the role of the military? and the security services and the transitional government. I'm talking with historian Alden Young. He's director of Africana Studies at Drexel University, and we're talking about what's been happening at Sudan. In Sudan earlier this week, the military and opposition protesters looked close to an agreement on finding a way forward for the country, but there's been uh, violence and the talks have been suspended. Um, Before the talks were suspended, uh, it, it, there was uh, some agreement that the opposition alliance would have two-thirds of the seat on the legislative council, which sounds pretty good for the opposition. But there's another council, a sovereign council, which would be the top tier of power making. And uh, sounds like the military wants the majority there. Is that a tenable position? I think that's where the tensions lie. I think the tensions lie on whether or not the military will have the upper hand on the sovereign council, what the differentiation of powers will be between the sovereign council and the legislative council, how long the transition will go on for. And I think underlying all that are are important questions about immunity for the military and whether or not they will be able to maintain um, autonomy of operation. For instance... Are are either of those a good thing? Uh, I mean, usually in a transition, you you have to do something to buy off the military. But how far do you go in this instance? I think that's a really important question and one that the opposition, um, the Alliance for Freedom and Change has been struggling with. They know that they can't – they know that they can't completely marginalize the military. But at the same time – They've seen regional examples, for instance, what happened eventually in Egypt, where they know that they also need to reform the military. And so I think their goal would be to have an elongated transition and then to restore a professionalized military that has less involvement with politics, perhaps even merging um, these paramilitary forces like the rapid support forces into the regular military. But... The question is whether or not the military um, would put up with such a transition, whether or not the military is willing to give up its elongated role in politics. We have it, It's been in politics since, uh, I don't know, independence, essentially. Yes, the military in Sudan has come to power at least three times, ruling the country for more than half of its um, post-independent history. And this time... It's been in power since 1989. Well, you know, they must be completely immersed in the economy as well. I mean, you were mentioning that Hamati is maybe the biggest gold trader in the country. Uh, Is the rest of the military doing the same thing? I think that's one of the largest problems is that the military is is in all sectors of the economy. The military is running parallel corporations. The military is invested in the military and the security services here. So we're also talking about the intelligence services, armed movements within the Islamist movement, um, 
these these regional militias of which Hamdati's rapid support forces are the largest, each of them has their own corporations. They're invested in oil production, oil transportation, basic foodstuffs, telecommunications. Um, many people suspect them of also operating the black market for dollars and other goods and, and massive amounts of smuggling. And so, and so the military has to be, I think the, the Alliance for Freedom and Change is hoping to restore the military to its primary task of defending the nation rather than these um, economic tasks that it's now involved in. Well, how do you do something like that? Do you privatize these entities and give these military guys control and tell them to head off into um, control the economic fortunes of the country rather than the, the military fortunes? I think that's going to be one of the, that's also a challenge. But we have to remember that at the core of the Alliance for Freedom and Change is the Sudanese Professional Association, which which come, grows out of what they call in Sudan parallel unions. So essentially non-recognized, rec, unions that are not recognized by the government. And these unions actually exist in most of these industries. And so they exist in telecommunications, they exist in the banking sector, they exist in the railroad, railroads, and of course, you know, things like food production, hospitals. And I think one of the things that scares members of the military is the growing power of the trade unions, which I think would be an alternative way of governing um, parts of the industries in Sudan. All right. So, the, so the opposition could kind of turn things over to the trade unions, to the trade unions and to private enterprises. All right. Very tricky. Um, is this situation seems to have so much internal gravity? The um, the two sides, uh, you know, having this tightly wound dispute. Uh, is there things outside players can do to help uh, resolve the situation, whether regional players, uh, the West, the Europe, anybody else? I mean, Sudan at this moment is still is still undergoing a um, an escalating economic crisis, and I think one of the things that the United States can do is it can make clear that if the transition uh, proceeds to a civilian government that it will provide um, aid, economic aid, financial aid, and debt forgiveness for Sudan, helping to reintegrate Sudan into the international economy. And for us, the other big thing we can do is we can accelerate the removal of sanctions um, on Sudan. Is there any sign that the Trump administration is doing those things? The embassy in Khartoum has been very supportive of the protesters. One of the... One of the questions, though, is the extent to which our regional allies, like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, are perhaps supporting elements of the military regime. But this, this has remained a bit confusing at the moment. It would seem like if the United States wanted to talk to its allies in Saudi Arabia and kind of get them to uh, cut the cord with the military, they could do so. Well, it gets a bit tricky because for us and the Europeans, we also have regional interests that perhaps um, trump some of the our concerns with Sudan itself. For instance, the Europeans have been funding um, indirectly both 
parts of the rapid support forces and the military because of their desire to control migration. And so one of the things that the military started to do is it started to provide, it started to sell its services to the Europeans in order to be like a border force wow. um, along the border with Libya, for instance. And the United States, to the extent that we still support the war in Yemen, um, we're indirectly supporting um, elements within the Sudanese security services and military that are perhaps hostile to the protesters. Well, that's very interesting. Um, do, how, what are the odds that um, this deal gets cut, you think, and, and the talks pick up in 72 hours and they go right back to cutting a deal? I think right now we're really in a test of strength because what the protesters can do, though they though the uh, the Alliance for Freedom and Change has clear, has said that it actually has not stopped the railroad system in Sudan, I think one of the things the military is afraid of is that the protesters could actually um, cause a general strike in Sudan, basically bringing the country to a halt. Because in Sudan, most of the infrastructure is centralized in such a way that it has to pass through a very few choke, choke points. And so you can't really bring food and materials to the different provinces of Sudan if you can't pass through Khartoum, in central Khartoum, right where the sit-in is. And so if the military is not able to disperse the protesters... There's, the protesters always have hanging over them the ability to bring the country to a standstill. Fascinating. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Alden Young, Director of Africana Studies at Drexel University, author of Transforming Sudan, Decolonization, Economic Development, and State Formation. Thanks for joining us. Thank you again. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about climate change and human rights. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. There's a new kind of climate change challenge at the UN Human Rights Committee. A group of eight indigenous people from the Torres Strait Islands say that uh, by failing to take adequate action on climate change, the Australian government has violated their fundamental human rights. Let's talk about the case and indigenous leadership on climate change with Siri Valen. She is assistant professor of environmental studies at the Institute at Brown for Environment and Society. Thanks very much for joining us, Siri. Thanks for having me, Jerome. I wonder if you could tell us a little about this indigenous community in these Australian islands, because I think most people, when they think of indigenous in Australia, are thinking about the indigenous people uh, right there in the big old main continent of Australia. Um, What's up with the Torres Strait Islanders? So the Torres Strait Islanders are a uh, distinct and separate group of people to the mainland Aboriginal Australian groups. Uh, they have a, a different culture, a different history, and have a have a unique standing in uh, in the Australian setting. 
Um, and uh, they, they have a very particular history in Australia as well, um, where the famous, well, I don't know if, if uh, the, the listeners here have heard of the, the Marbo case in Australia from 1992. Uh, this was also the location at which um, that uh, landmark ruling happened in Australia that overturned a history of terra nullius in Australia. And, uh, and the, the indigenous people were victorious in that and, and started getting land rights? Is that what? Yes, that's right. So, so when Australia was settled in, in 1788, uh, they claimed that the land was terra nullius, meaning that nobody lived there. Um, and what that uh, Eddie Marbo um, claimed in a, in a case against the, the Queensland government in Australia back in 1982 was to have recognition that no indeed uh, the Torres Strait Islands and the Australian continent was occupied and, and people did live there and that those people have inalienable human rights as people uh, and they were victorious in that case it took them 10 years um, 1992 that's very recent um, in, in world history did, did that terra nullius doctrine finally uh, get overturned and Torres Strait Islanders and Aboriginal people um, could claim citizenship and those basic fundamental human rights that the rest of the Australian people have. Now this case that um, some uh, eight Indigenous people have brought at the UN Human Rights Committee, um, they are viol- saying that the Australian government is violating their fundamental human rights. Uh, how, why did they bring it to the UN Human Rights Committee, do you think? Well, I mean, Australia has has a bit of a sketchy history um, with its uh, with its indigenous peoples, and um, they have uh, tried repeatedly to to get help from the Australian government to um, cover the costs adapting to climate change. Of course, these um, Torres Strait Islands face many of the same challenges as small island nations around the world where rising seas are causing shoreline erosion and it's, it's eating into um, ancestral lands um, to living areas and so on. Um, and they see that the Australian government has failed to take action and taking this to the United Nations is, is, a, is a large step, um, both for them, but also it sets a historic precedence in, internationally, I think. Does the UN Human Rights Committee, have they been hinting around about climate change as a human right? Oh, absolutely. I think they've been doing a lot more than hinting. Um, they published a um, understanding on human rights and climate change back in 2015. And um, they've, they've um, made very, very clear statements and have a very clear and established language on climate change as a human rights issue that um, rests on, on quite a few different um, observations. But some of it being that those people who are most affected by climate change are people who've done the least to contribute to that climate change. Um, they're often marginalised groups. They, they're often Indigenous groups and are already facing uh, challenges in sort of taking the right action to both uh, mitigate and adapt to climate change. So these are people in a particular need of, of that kind of um, protection uh, but also that on a global scale, it, it doesn't just affect Indigenous peoples, it affects us, everybody, that um, it, it has real impacts on, on people's way of lives, on our ability to feed ourselves, um, on um, our sort of standard of living. And so um, the United Nations has um, 
made the statement uh, for, for quite some time now. Um, I think it's a well-established understanding. Is this the first time, though, that the UN Human Rights Committee would get to take a case and um, kind of make a decision about this against a against the Australian government in this case? As far as I understand, yes. This would be the first time that um, a group of people has asked the United Nations Human Rights Commission to, to make this kind of, uh, uh, of a statement. Um, as, as far as I understand, um, it's, it's a world first. Um, maybe not the last. I'm talking with Siri uh, Valen. She is the Assistant Professor of Environmental Studies at the Institute at Brown for Environment and Society, and we're talking about a challenge uh, to the Australian government by the Torres Strait Islands uh, indigenous people. They are going, taking their case to the UN Human Rights Committee. And this is uh, – it goes along with other people and cases across the planet, um, some indigenous, some not, where – uh, I mean, there's a Juliana versus the United States here where young people are suing for more action on climate change. There's a there's a bunch of these kind of things going on. Mm. Absolutely. There's a, it, it, it files into uh, what's becoming, unfortunately, a, a tradition where uh, attempts to, to get governments to, to sort of wake up and, and take action are, are going through the courts. Um, uh, and it... Yeah. What about indigenous um, groups and communities? They seem to be in a leadership position uh, repeatedly on climate change. Why is why is it always the indigenous people? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. I'll, I'll let indigenous people um, speak to that themselves, I suppose. But um, certainly, you know, one thing as I've said is that you know indigenous peoples are, in a sense, experiencing some of these things firsthand, and, and in most cases, not being part of. Um, creating the problem, um, and I want to say, uh, I'm sure your, your, your listeners have, have um, uh, heard about the, the cases in Alaska, uh, for instance, uh, township of, of Kivalina uh, and Shishmaref, which are both these sort of island communities that are about to be swallowed by, by the ocean, and uh, Kivalina in particular um, made a lawsuit back in 2008. Um, those cases didn't win through. Um, but it ties in with uh, a bit of a tradition where Indigenous people, I think, have been and continue to um, make a case for understanding how to take care of our, our planet and, and having a, a better, better perspectives on, on what this place is that we, we call our sort of common home and having, uh, a, I think, a better tradition for understanding perhaps the, the sort of close and intimate relationship between, uh, sort of, you know, um, how, how we manage our resources and the kind of uh, impacts that it has um, without wanting to kind of um, romanticize or anything. I know that, that there are a lot of problems as well in, um, in Indigenous communities, but I think there has been a, a continuous effort by very many Indigenous groups to sort of educate, um, particularly Westerners, on, on more holistic ways of understanding our embeddedness in, in these sort of natural systems that um, that we are we're rampantly destroying at a at a very fast rate. It's um, it's quite scary the the speed at which this is going. It's been inspirational to see the indigenous groups in Canada that are doing the um, pipeline fighting and and the Dakotas and uh, there seems to be a an increase uh, in their political stature and, and impact. I, I, I don't you know, I mean, we had um, 
an indigenous woman who was the the justice minister um, in the Canadian government, and uh, you know she's in the middle of this scandal that uh, she resigned her position from the Trudeau government and is thinking about joining the Green Party now, and the Greens just want a seat uh, in a by election out in um, out in uh, the British Columbia, and there's there's a lot going on there that. Uh, there's a lot of movement into mainstream thinking, I think, about uh, indigenous ways of doing things. Um, absolutely. And, you know, again, without um, sort of blanketing uh, indigenous groups as, as all being environmentalists, I think um, that, you know, that, that's probably not necessarily uh, the yeah, case sure. in, everywhere. But certainly that um, they have often found um, good partnerships with environmentalist groups Um because they have had a greater interest in in um, being more careful with land use changes than perhaps in those cases where where indigenous groups have been dispossessed and have been unable to um, to influence developments um, certainly there, you know there's there is a greater ethic of, of care that comes with that ancestral relationship to an area that kind of um, uh, I don't know. In, in the United States, at least, um, maybe has an impact on, on just how engaged and, and caring people are for, for limiting um, environmental impacts like that, like that pipeline. Um, but um, and yeah, without wanting to kind of blanket uh, all indigenous groups is necessarily having that same um, environmental profile. Sure. Uh, in thinking about things like uh, how we do agriculture, it seems to be one of the big things that is going to have to change if we are going to be successful with climate change. And indigenous people have um, have attitudes towards that too. Absolutely. And I think um, the United States food movement is, um, is a large player there. And, and um, you know, industrial agriculture and the way that we grow our food currently. I mean, we are so disconnected, both from the way that our food is produced and how we eat it and where we're disposing of it after. And um, Native American groups um, across the country and, and across the Americas uh, are working hard to maintain this sort of culture and ethic of care around um, indigenous food produce, indigenous um, food species of um, you have it legumes, um, corn, and, and so on, um, where you know taking care of these agricultural species is, is not just a commodity. You know, it's it's a part of an ethic of care where we sort of recognise how intimately these um, these food crops and food products are, are a part of a living, healthy uh, uh, ecosystem, but also living um, and and healthy human communities as well. And I, I do think that um, that sort of educational aspect that um, many Indigenous groups have felt that they have needed to, to engage in to kind of um, get us to listen, <laughs> I might say, it, it, it seems to have some kind of an effect as well. Um, I think the, the, the food movement in the United States is, uh, has come very far in terms of sort of urban and small-scale farming um, for, for also non-Indigenous communities. It, that, that seems to be a very promising and, and healthy movement um, here. But I'm also thinking of things like um, the New Zealand um, Wanganui River, which um, in... Uh, trad traditional uh, Maori culture, this river is a person with, with human rights. And um, 
that case famously uh, came up um, when that river was recognized as a person. And that seems to be having um, a kind of a rippling effect as well, where the Ganges is now recognized um, as a person. And most recently, Lake Erie uh, in Ohio oh, really? um, also was voted as, as having the same per- uh, rights as a person. So um, there does seem to be somewhat of an effect as well in, in, uh, in this kind of urgency <laughs> of ours to... Um, take better care of uh, of our environment that you know some of these lessons do seem to be sinking in and having an impact absolutely Siri Veland is the as assistant professor of environmental studies at the Institute at Brown University for Environment and Science thanks a lot for joining us and we'll keep our eye on the case uh, at the United Nations Human Rights Committee with the Torres Strait Islands thanks very much for mm. joining us thank you very much for having me I appreciate it This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Here at Worldview, many of the issues we cover know no borders and are just as prescient here at home as they may be elsewhere. Take clean air and clean water. It's something we all need. WBEZ's Monica Ang recently heard about a play that brings those global concerns to Chicago. Thanks, Jerome. Free Street Theater's latest production is called Parched. In it, Chicago youth explore global water issues and how they relate to environmental justice and life right here in Chicago. I recently talked to the play's director, Katrina Dion, and I started by asking how they decided to take on this big topic. So a couple years ago, we were looking at future seasons. Uh, Free Street Theater turns 50 this summer and trying to think about what kind of issues or shows did we want to have our place center around around uh, the time of our 50th anniversary. And we were thinking a lot about healing and moving forward. And this was, you know, just a couple years after the news of Flint became a national news. You know, we were seeing more about the rise of lead in the pipes of Chicago and just started thinking about the healing power of water and how important that was and just decided, you know, this is this is something to explore with our youth to get them more informed about just the ways that even uh, with environmental injustices, how that seeps into their lives too. And what kind of research did the kids do to learn more about this? We have done a lot of research. We've had experts come in. Uh, Rachel Haverlrock from uh, UIC Freshwater Labs did a presentation for them on uh, the social water cycle. They've looked back at the archives of the Tribune about how long how long have people been writing about lead in Chicago water. They've interviewed people from the Flint community. So it's all a mix of, you know, bringing people in to educate them, doing research, going back into archives, going to libraries, and then interviewing people across the nation and internationally about their own experience with water. And so all that's been going on for about uh, 10 months. So how does all this research become a play? That's a great question. And a lot of it is just trial and error, you know, taking inspiration or, you know, and that comes from like pop culture. What are songs that we like? How do we now let's try throwing that song together with a story of Lake Michigan, you know, and seeing how do those things come together? So sometimes it feels just kind of like throwing things at the wall at first, you know, what's really getting us to dig deeper, what's getting the most interesting material out of us. And then going with that trend and just, you know, seeing, okay, this worked. How do we get the rest of our play to fit into that aesthetic? So, you know, 
know, it's just writing scenes, writing monologues, then working together. Uh, sometimes we'll be like, hey, you have five minutes, make a scene, what happens, you know, and just taking in all that information and just cutting it and accepting it and forming it into a play. So it sounds like there's some music in this. Can you tell me about one of the songs? So there is a scene about Lake Michigan. I am Lake Michigan. I am Lake Michigan. Really just being like, I provide all of this for you. You know, looking back at when the Chicago River was reversed and how then that cleaned up the lake so much. And there's this song called Attitude by like Kelly 47. That's just like, I got an attitude. I'm amazing. I'm the queen. And our sound designer took that song, remixed it with that actor saying Lake Michigan. Michigan, 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 Michigan. And it's this like incredible Lake Michigan remix to that song. It's amazing. So that was Steal the Water from Parched at the Free Street Theater. The sound designer was local DJ Coochie Fruit Jacqueline Guerrero, by the way. So for those who come out to see Parched, which is playing weekends through May 18th, what can they expect? They can expect to sort of be hugged while also simultaneously given a lot of information. Uh, I think the play does a really beautiful job of reminding us of the beauties of water and how comforting and important it is and how to honor water, while also revealing all of the ways in which it's manipulated, taken advantage of, taken from us, um, polluted. And so the ensemble will take care of you, provide you with tools for how to move forward, but also a lot of information so that you can think more critically about your own water privilege or your connection to water or your own water access. Michigan, 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 Lake, Michigan. You can find tickets for Parched at freestreet.org. And folks are just expected to pay what they can. Michigan, 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 Michigan. That was Worldview Food, Health, and Culture contributor Monica Eng. Coming up after the break, the significance of the missile threat from Iran. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The New York Times reports that the intelligence that caused the White House to escalate its warnings about a threat from Iran came from photographs of missiles on small boats in the Persian Gulf that were put on board by Iranian or put on board Iranian paramilitary forces, and that's according to three American officials. And with me to talk about what's happening with Iran is Matteo Farzaneh, and he's an associate professor of history at the um, Northeastern Illinois University. Thanks for joining us, Matteo. Thanks for having me again. Um, what do you think about this intelligence here? Here we've got, you know, finally the U.S. has said what is really on their minds, and it's these missiles going into boats. What does that mean? Well, I don't know whether or not this is true for two reasons. Number one, we can remember the yellow cake incident to the lead up to the Iraq invasion in 2003. 
So it makes me very suspicious. Number two, there could be missiles going into boats, but I'm not sure the Iranians would be that naive to do it so openly so somebody can take photos. I think there is other elements at work that is doing that. What do you think about the listening uh, evidence that uh, has been talked about, that the U.S. says that they hear that uh, Iranian chatter, that they're going to attack U.S. forces in Iraq? I mean, the reason would be for what exactly? That's what I'm not clear on. And the chatter, we don't know what that chatter is. But uh, with all the evidence that's on the table right now, with the British uh, defense minister said yesterday, there's absolutely no uh, concern on their behalf that there would be an imminent threat uh, raised by the Iranian forces. Uh, this is all part of the maximum pressure campaign that uh, the Pompeo and Trump administration are doing here. Um, what do you? Uh, how do you describe what's going on with maximum pressure? They, they, some people are saying, well, it's it's geared towards goading a a accident, a confrontation. Uh, other people like Mike Pompeo say, oh, it's not, it's not meant for a war. We're just trying to put pressure so we can get to the negotiating table. Well, Iranians have never uh, come to a negotiating table because of this kind of pressure. And remember, the Iranian population of 82 million already are experiencing an economic war simply because of the economic sanctions that were snapped back on by President Trump last year. The price of everything that the Iranians consume has jumped anywhere between 150% to 600%. That is a, there is a war already. And if anybody wants to get the hearts and minds of Iranians to their side, they're uh, miserably failing right now. I wanted to talk a bit about the role of Congress here. And we have a clip from Lindsey Graham, who had some interesting things to say about uh, what he, the information that he's got. And I would urge the State Department and DOD to come down here and explain to us what's going on, because I have no idea what the threat stream is beyond what I read in the paper. And I think there are a lot of people in my shoes that are going to support standing up to Iran, but we need to understand what we're doing. So I would urge the administration to come down here and, uh, and, and brief members of Congress about the threat as they see it coming from Iran. Mateo, do you think Congress can make a difference with the administration? If it really wants to, but I don't think it can at this time, and it doesn't have the will. Um, one thing that I was thinking about uh, on the way here is that they knew that Pompeo is a war hawk, and they still confirmed him as Secretary of State. Uh, so that's an important point, I think, that cannot be missed. At the same time, uh, with all the things that people say about uh, Donald Trump, I don't think he is uh, pushing the button ready sort of a mode right now. Uh, there are several things that I think he probably understands or people have told him that are around him, minus Bolton, that the size of Iran is uh, four times as much as Iraq, that the population is three times as much, that uh, Iraq uh, was a Sunni-led government by Saddam Hussein over a Shiite majority population in 2003. You don't have that in Iran. You have 90% Shiite population in Iran that has participated vis-a-vis -vis the Revolutionary Guard and the besieged, the militia, uh, the post-revolutionary uh, um, uh, militia uh, organizations that were highly active in defeat of uh, ISIS, for the lack of a better term, in Iraq and Syria. All of those things could be activated if there is any sort of an attack on uh, uh, by Americans on Iranian soil. 
So it, you take some solace in the reports from the Washington Post and things that depict uh, inside the Trump administration that he is frustrated by advisors, is not convinced the time is right to attack Iran, which he, in his Twitter feed, called fake news. And uh, he said uh, the Washington Post and the even more fake news New York Times are writing stories that there's infighting. There is no infighting whatsoever. Different opinions are expressed. I make a decisive and final decision. I said this the other day on another program that Zarif has played this really well. He is kind of playing with what Trump always wants to be seen as the decision maker. And he kind of pitted Trump against Bolton and all the hawks around him, which I don't think it's other than Pompeo inside the American government, beside Pompeo and Bolton, and perhaps in Saudi Arabia by uh, Savior Salman. So um, I think Javad is winning in this psychological sort of encounter, if you will, uh, with President Trump. And we've got a clip from Javad Zarif uh, on Face the Nation from April 25th, where he talks about who is uh, who is behind everything on Iran. The U.S. administration is putting uh, things in place for accidents to happen. And there has to be extreme vigilance so that people who are planning this type of accident would not have their way. What do you mean? What kind of accident are you talking about? I'm talking about people who have who are designing confrontation, whose um, interest, uh, my B team. What do you I've mean B team? I, I call the group B team who have always tried to uh, create tension, whose continued existence depends on tension. Ambassador Bolton. One B, Bibi Netanyahu, second B, Bin Zayed, third B, Bin Salman, fourth B. And that's uh, Javad Zarif, the foreign minister of Iran, talking with uh, Margaret um, Brennan at uh, on Face the Nation on April 25th. Now, what uh, what do you think about that? He's got a, a global cabal that is is pushing pushing the buttons here. Uh, is that uh, what's going on? Well, definitely, I think. Uh, it's very similar to the lead-up to the Iraq war where Turkey and Saudi Arabia were not very happy, or Kuwait for that matter, with Saddam Hussein. But one thing that uh, people might be mistaken at this time is that Iran is really not having too many enemies in the Middle East other than the state of Israel. Lebanon is on the side of Iran, and so is Syria, and so is Turkey, with the exception of the Persian Gulf countries, such as uh, um, Bahrain, which is by majority Shiite, and by United Arab Emirates, and Saudi Arabia. Really, there are no friends or allies within the Middle East to support this. Um, is the rivalry with Saudi Arabia um, something that is behind the scenes driving this? Everyone's... Uh, the Saudis always talk about the Iranian role in Yemen, and uh, is that a, a factor in the the B team and what they're thinking? Well, definitely. I think if we uh, take this back a notch, uh, historically, Saudi Arabia, since the Islamic Revolution in 1979, 40 years ago, has been in constant tension. It's had its good days and its bad days. But at the same time, because of the stated expression of Ayatollah Khomeini's wanting to export the revolution and uh, 
uh, destroy and annihilate all the monarchical powers within the region. Uh, it's in the best interest of Saudi Arabia. That's how Saudi Arabia sees it, that Iran is basically annihilated or the Islamic Republic is actually annihilated, not Iran. And if you remember back in the WikiLeaks days, there was a conversation with Saudi diplomats where they had suggested to some uh, high-ranking American uh, government official that you should just go for the neck of the snake and not for the tail, which they were basically talking about Iran. So it's the same game still. Does the relationship between the Trump administration and the Saudis concern you? It does, because Jared Kushner is the <laughs> go-between. And uh, yes, uh, and there's a lot of you know financial stuff going on as well that we are not privy to understand or to know for the time being. There's a lot of weapons that are being sold to Saudi Arabia. A lot of people within the United States economy are actually making money off of that. Whenever I see that, that worries me, of course. Does... Uh, Iran have any better choices? I mean, we saw recently Iran um, coming out and uh, kind of nudging the Europeans and the and the the, the, the nuclear agreement. Uh, is that the kind of thing they're trying to bring pressure on U.S. allies in Europe to do more to to help them out of their economic uh, situation? Now, is that? Um, is that good? I mean, the Europeans said it was nuclear blackmail and we're, we're going we're to stand for it. Well, the, the fact remains the same. The United States is the most powerful economic and military power in the world. Uh, Europe cannot compete against it or go against its will too much. And at the same time, uh, uh, Vladimir Putin this morning said that you know, we are not a fire department. We cannot put out fires that Americans actually start. So really, nobody's able to uh, fight on the side of Iran uh, against the United States. The only solution that I see, and I think I said this on this program last year, if I were Javad Zarif or if I was a decision maker in Iran, I would put the same nuclear agreement, the same thing in front of Trump, and remove the names of Obama and anybody who was associated with Obama and put Donald Trump's name <laughs> on it, and he would be more than happy to sign it, and this thing would be over. All right. The, um, uh, it's interesting to think about it that way. But uh, he seems to think it was the worst deal ever. And and he thinks he can do better than that is his stated position. Yeah, he can sign it differently. <laughs> <laughs> and the uh, now the Iranians say they would talk to the Trump administration about that deal as long as that deal was the basis for negotiations, right? I mean, uh, what would anybody with their right mind do? You've negotiated an agreement. You've signed it. It's passed through the Congress. It's passed uh, through UN Security Council. It is a resolution. That means it is internationally accepted. If I were Iran, I would be very, very upset and disheartened by the actions of the Americans. And this actually works in, right into the hands of the hardliners in Iran that from day one, before the negotiations started, said, do not trust Americans because they could sign documents and the next day they could just cross it out. And if the Trump administration really did sit down with Iran, they would want um, uh, a kind of a perpetual uh, um, deal where, where they never get access to anything, any enrichment, any kind of and, thing. And that's a very important issue that you bring up because that then uh, brings to question the idea or the concept of national sovereignty. What is national sovereignty? Iran is a signatory to MPT 
the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Iran is abiding by all the articles uh, of the nuclear agreement, the JCPOA. Iran has the right, uh, and I'm not an agent of Iran by any chance, but historically, if we see that Iran has always, in its relationship with the United States, has always tried to to save its dignity, to be an honorable nation, and for that reason, I think nobody can really expect too much from the Iranian side. I think whatever has to happen, if anybody wants peace or the lessening of the tensions, they have to look toward Washington for the solution. Do you think Iran is just going to try to hold its powder for two years and see what happens with the U.S. elections? That's the only choice that Iran has right now. Well, it's uh, very interesting, and we'll certainly keep our eye on the situation in Iran. Matteo Farsane is Associate Professor of History and the inaugural principal of the Mossadegh Initiative at Northeastern Illinois University in Chicago. He's author of the book The Iranian Constitutional Revolution and the Clerical Leadership of Khorasani. And thanks a lot for joining us, Matteo Farsane. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Tomorrow on WBEZ, we're going to take it easy and we're going to think about gardening. It's springtime and urban gardening is booming in this town. We're going to take the show on the road. We're going to be at the City Grange, which is at 5500 Northwestern Avenue. It's a new kind of flower or gardening supply place. It is uh, done by the woman who did the uh, Peterson Uh, urban gardening project and we are going to be up there and chatting with her and we'll talk about some of the joys of urban gardening and some of the challenges of urban gardening stay with us uh, tomorrow on worldview and we'll take in a little sunshine do a little growing it'll be fun worldview is produced by steve bynum and julian haida thanks to jenny friedland and ashish valentine for production assistance thanks to mike gilmore for engineering i'm jerome mcdonald and you've been listening to worldview on wbez (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.